It's just before seven on a Saturday morning outside the Kayleen Bar and Bistro. The car park is strewn with plastic bottles of Barocca and the bistro is closed. The front of the building bears a purple graffiti tag and an empty shop's window displays a curtain of black plastic. Apart from the tall trees that hang over this concrete expanse and the bright blue metal benches, it's not a scene that you would call inviting. But it is home to what I've come to think of as a Vietnamese breakfast club. Welcome to the return of Love, Canberra. This is a show about love, sex, and relationships here in the heart of the nation. I'm Ivana Ho. That's Twa. He's in his mid-70s and is the most sprightly of the bunch. What's not too sweet is the cake that I brought to this morning's breakfast. All the things he cooked, less fat, less sugar. (laughs) My food is very plain. (laughs) Not much salt, not much oil, not Mm -hmm. much sugar. That's Twa's wife, Q. Together, they comprise one half of the Vietnamese Breakfast Club. Cho, the third member, is in her 80s and is an active grandmother to four grandchildren. Her husband T founded the group. So you're having family over for Christmas? Yes. Mm-hmm. The, the grandchildren. How many grandchildren was that? Maybe two or four are coming. Mm-hmm. But the rest, <laughs> they're all gone out, all <laughs> far away. T formed the group 30 years ago with one simple desire. He liked walking and then it came to him that it would be nicer if you have friends to walk along. And so the group of friends go walking around Kayleen Primary every Saturday and Sunday morning at about half past six. Even in winter. In their earlier years, they'd do four laps across an hour and a half. Now they're down to two laps, which they complete in half an hour. There have been other changes too. Since the group began three decades ago, it's shrunk from its original size of eight. Gradually, some die, some too old, some more away. So mm. now end up only two of us. That's when T invited Twa and Q to join. Instead of two, yeah, you come along. You need more member. Originally, the group had been a boys' club. Only once things had dwindled to unsustainable numbers did the wives start joining in. When the wives joined, around seven years ago, that's when breakfast was added to the morning ritual. After walking, we have tea to drink. And... When the ladies join in, they tend to bring in some sweet, and then later, later, everything. (laughs) Whatever you can find or you can think of. Walking for a healthy body, and And the next one, 
Uh, is there any complaint with their wife or husband <laughs> and then they come here and discuss it? <laughs> no, 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 that's joking. <laughs> The Vietnamese Breakfast Club are kind of famous in Kayleen. They're friendly with the regular dog walkers and joggers who say hello as they pass by. One morning before Christmas, we were approached by Alan, who rolled up on his bike. Alan lives nearby and was the person who mentioned the group to me. Alan. Hi, Alan. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Alan. What's your friend? Oh, have, have a piece of cake. No, 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 thank you. No, no, thank you. But Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to all. You too. Then there are the people the group don't know, but who feel like they know the group. Who was in the um, white car that drove past? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes they pass along and then they just wife. I don't mm-hmm. know. They know we stay here for a long time. <laughs> yeah, we go and it's, it was odd that uh, five, six years ago when yeah. we started the light dancing and the lady somehow recognized me, asked me whether you are in a group who used to have the picnic in the park uh, in front of my house. I said, yes. <laughs> but I said, it's really odd, it's really odd. Every morning I look out and see your party. <laughs> What do friends talk about when they've been meeting every weekend, year after year? Well, if my experience is anything to go by, they share news about themselves, their children and grandchildren, they reminisce about the past, and they talk about food. Like the chat Q and I had about watermelon. The cut one, you go home and then you cut the surface off. Oh. They never wash their knives. And sometimes, Friends eat dried apricots. They don't want to. Apricot. Ah, right. Okay. Tried it, so uh, I actually don't really I like. I get a small less one for you. Okay. Uh, no. uh, okay. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Nothing. <laughs> Q and I talked about how she sews clothes for her grandchildren. Everything from comfy pajama pants to costumes. Recently, she made a dress for her granddaughter, who was in a school play. A murder mystery set at a castle. I ask you if her school ever put on plays when she was growing up in Vietnam. She said they did, but she didn't act in them because she was too shy. I never put up my hand to do that. Apart from uh, singing in a group, mm-hmm. I stay behind and just my <laughs> Standing in the back miming. Yeah, we've all been there. Do you still do any singing? No, my voice is terrible. (laughs) Do you agree with that? Uh, I don't uh, sing. uh, Only thing she, uh, when she talked to me, I feel like it. (laughs) That all? (laughs) I I swear, otherwise, come here, please. Have you heard your wife sing before? Not really, only when she happy, she, I, I just heard. Only one or two sentences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, two, one or two short lyrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And she sings when she do something else. Yeah, <laughs> cooking. Only, only me alone. Here's somebody walking. She made a gesture of zipping up her lips. <laughs> but I heard from that. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of um, introvert person. Mm-hmm. Mm. But you were, um, you, you taught Vietnamese, didn't you, back in Vietnam? Oh, you taught her? Yeah, yeah. A primary school teacher. Okay. I mean, it seems like to be a teacher, you know, and to be in front of people and to talk to people, you would because need to... Because of the training. Okay. Yeah, I okay. can do that in front of students, for the students. I talk and talk. Mm-hmm. But in a group of 12, you ask me to stand up and talk. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is it because you're afraid of... Um, saying the wrong thing or yeah okay. I think too conscious mm. of myself and then over the years I lost the self-esteem mm. in Vietnam our life I mean was um, easy mm-hmm. even in the war but after the communists taking over Suddenly, we lost everything, and I struggle, and I feel that I couldn't survive. Like, um, I have a house to live in, I have furniture, I have savings. And then, within a week, he was in the concentration camp, and I have two small daughters. They asked the, um, the ex-public servant have to represent them, and then they sent to uh, retraining. Re-education. No, you were yeah. put in the re-education camp, but actually that's a concentration camp. And for people outside like me, have to be retrained, learn their doctrine, learn the communist doctrine to be able to work for them. And I didn't want to, so I didn't. Uh, I just got my job and lost. And suddenly, you see, no job, no husband nearby, two small children, and lost the house. They just mm. take the house. And they asked me to sign the paper, said I volunteer to give them the house to live in. But actually, they take away from us and we have no voice. Mm. And lucky that, uh, because I live in a small town, so the regime, the, the new regime have a tighter control. But my father was in Saigon. My mother sent me some money to live by. And then they sent me the gold for me to pay for the escape. You heard a lot about after 75, many Vietnamese uh, become both people when he out, we escaped. Mm-hmm. So they released you? Yeah, they oh, released yeah, yeah. him. Uh, how long were you there? One and a half years. About, yeah, about this time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Not too long. Yeah. <laughs> Compared with other people. Because Some people. he didn't say that. He didn't tell them his actual work in the army. Mm. 
He served in the South Vietnamese Army. He was an artillery. Yeah. Artillery plan. Yeah. But he said yeah. he's just a normal soldier. Mm. Because it was worse to be that kind of artillery. No, artillery sent to the north and to be in concentration camp for a long time. Yeah. Five years, yeah. ten years, you wouldn't know. Yeah. Mm. The early um, victory of the communists, they put him in a concentration camp near our home. Yeah, near so the town, the same time. I was able to feed him send him food twice a day yeah. and you know uh, with the bribe yes with the bribe yeah, yeah. with the bribe mm -hmm. he well, has a better mm. and you have heard the people sent to the north they didn't have enough to eat mm. <laughs> like uh, they can lose about one third of their body the weight, body weight yeah. <laughs> well that was very lucky then in a way, still lucky. Yeah. yeah. So. In any condition, we t if we think we do all we uh, all better than the people, ten million of people. Yeah, mm. a lot different. Thus, I I I told myself that we still very lucky. No complaining. Our life has a up and down, but very lucky. They reflected on the period when Thoa joined the South Vietnamese Army. It was 1968 and the war was widespread. The Tet Offensive had taken the war from the countryside to the cities of South Vietnam. In Thoa's memory, six months before he joined, he met and shook hands with the US Secretary of Defense. McNamara. Robert McNamara. Still didn't have to to lie up and welcome him. How did you feel about having to join the army? Just do that. Do what they want. If you live in the countryside, you have to join the communists. If you live in city, you have to join the Republic of Vietnam. Yeah, no choice. Mm. Nobody wanted to go to the uh, John Army. Oh, it, killing each mm. other. Yeah. You, uh, at, uh, uh, when you are the frontier, they got a gun, I got a gun. You kill them first before they kill you. And then they, uh, for the innocent people, I used to uh, sit on helicopter, call CNC, command and control uh, helicopter. And then on the plane, you can see people lies, uh, get killed or something, or the gun, shotgun, kill them. Many, many bad image. The things Thoa did and the things he saw would come to haunt him, not immediately, but about 20 years after his arrival in Australia. It was then that Thoa developed severe depression. About a year before he retired, he had nightmare and see all the things pass. Suddenly he developed very severe depression. 
That must have been very scary for you yeah. as well. I didn't know that it stayed in his subconscious mind for 30 years. Could be 30 years. When I was young, when I was in the army, uh, in the army it's okay. The, it passed every day, it happened every day. You don't see any um, guilty of our action. We find the yeah, feels yeah. a lot. But when uh, you left the army and you get older and your mind come back to the, the memories uh, come up and you feel yeah, not good at all. <laughs> you pay for the price. When Thoa first started having the nightmares, Q tried talking to him and easing his sense of guilt. When Thoa got worse, she contacted mental health services to have him see a specialist. It all happened quite fast while Q was out of town. It just came up suddenly when I was taking care of my daughter uh, in Brisbane. She gave birth to a girl. I intend to be there for three weeks. But after a week, I heard about him, and I asked him to live with one daughter in Narabanda. And I come back, and I see it really was every afternoon he wanted to suicide. Mm -hmm. He wanted to jump out the window, or maybe all black things in his mind. I watched him almost. 24 hours per day, even when I was sleeping. Because I'm a sly sleeper, I have my hand to touch him. When he gets up, I know straight away. Mm -hmm. Just like you have a baby. Mm -hmm. uh, I think my, my daughter asked him about... No, I asked him first whether you have a suicide thought. He said, yes. That made me scary. And I said, okay, whenever you want it, you tell me whether I can help you or you have to listen to me. He said, yes. So he wanted to do something, he told me. In a way, during that time, I really appreciated that I could control his mind. So he said, oh, I see black. I want to jump out the window. I said, okay, sit there. Wait a minute. Don't jump yet. And then he sit there and then the thought God. I don't know why I developed that kind of talk, but uh, somehow, instantly, I can talk to him. And then he confided in me. And my daughter asked, why didn't you want to kill yourself, that? He said, because every time like that, I see your mother picture in front of me. And she told me not to do it. That's good, isn't it? Yeah. That makes him survive. I put the grandchildren picture everywhere. I put album next to his uh, bed. I said, whenever you have uh, black images, get the album, see them happy like this. So absorb in the album instead of thinking something else. Mm. That's uh, one of the ways to uh, compete with the uh, sickness. Mm. <laughs> because I know he 
He's a family man, and then he loves his grandchildren a lot. So I don't put pictures of myself. I put them everywhere. <laughs> he look up in the wall. He look on the desk or table everywhere. So don't leave them. Don't leave them. <laughs> For people with depression, they need a lot of support, support. from the member of family. Mm. Yeah. What What was um, going on through your mind when you were looking at the photos in your room? And uh, we, yeah, we feel um, better stay alive. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we feel uh, yeah, we got a uh, at least. Uh, we got something better than the uh, image before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just try to use the image of the children to, to cover. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, to cover the black images. And sometimes he said, "Oh, black! I can't see anything. Oh, black!" And I say, "Because you are going to the tunnel. Go out. You see the light in the end." And somehow, he just saw it like that. When I first met Tua, I couldn't have imagined that I would be hearing such devastating stories about him. That first morning, I had introduced myself to the group before leaving them to enjoy their breakfast. As I drove slowly past, I waved in farewell. Tua stood up and ushered me to stop. I did, and he came to my passenger side window with a grin and extended a handful of sugar bananas. It's hard for me to reconcile this with the image of a man in such depths of depression that he told his wife he wanted to jump out the window. So I think it's a testament to their resilience and optimism that, in looking back, Tuan Q managed to see the humour in their situation. Tuan mentioned his specialist, Dr Kuma, who asked him at the time if he wanted to kill anyone else. Tuan responded, I said no, only myself. Yeah, because most of the people here are really helpful yeah, around they me. For me too. Yeah. <laughs> At one time, they asked me to hide all the knives. They asked you, uh, what plan you want to kill? He said he was in the army, he know. Many, many wives. Many things to, to go. Many wives. Yeah. <laughs> he said, be careful. <laughs> yeah. So I leave one small knife, and then whenever I use a big knife, I have to hide it after cooking. Gee, mm. but I'm glad that we survive now mm. and doesn't remember that much. Do you remember how it was that you escaped? Vietnam? Oh, that's a long story. Really, really long. Okay. <laughs> Q began to tell the story. She started by explaining how they escaped one moonless night by riverboat, a vessel not fit for sea travel. Twenty relatives and friends were crammed into that 11 metre long boat, but they couldn't all board it at once. We have three meetings point for people to get in because 20 people can't get into one place. Somebody may notice and report to the police. One cannot take five, six people to that 
meeting point and the river boat, the, the our boat to escape, run along the Malcolm Delta River and come to here. So we have three canoes, put some here, canoe here, canoe here, and then go out to the open ocean. And because that's a river boat, after two or, two or three days, the engine stopped with floating. until we met a uh, Thai, a fishing boat. Fishing and boat, yeah. we paid them 200 US dollars wow. to pull us near to the Malaysian border. Yeah. And then cut the road and floating to Trengganu. Mm. That's all. But lucky, still lucky. <laughs> nobody died, nobody was scrapped by the time. Mm. That must have been just a terrifying experience. Terrifying. Even more terrifying if you know that I have lost three siblings during their previous escape. Mm. So I said, <laughs> my life is boring, but really a lot of sad things mm. happened to me. Like, uh, a year before, the three youngest of my sibling, the one still single, escaped. And they're missing. Never heard of them since then. But my mother was really bright. She had a nervous breakdown, but she's still able to send one by one after that. She can say that we have no future living in the communism. So she sacrificed a lot, and my father too. In our family, we dare to mention the three missing. My mother couldn't stand it until 10 years later she recovered. And did your parents stay in Vietnam? Yeah. When they heard that, we all settled abroad. Uh, one of my sisters sponsored them to America. Mm. And now they live in, oh, they lived in Los Angeles no, no. for oh, a while? I mean, oh, I told you three of my sister and brother, but they passed away seven years ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm. So we have to go. Okay. Before we continue with the story, I just wanted to let you know about a little blog post I've written to accompany this episode. It's up at lovecamberpodcast.com. And if you like what you've been hearing, please leave a review on iTunes to help others find the show. Okay, back to it. The following Sunday, we all brought more food than we could possibly eat. Cho had steamed some Chinese bao with minced chicken, vegetables and egg yolk. There were little pots of hummus, one for each of us, slices of ripe papaya, which Tua urged me to take home, and I'd made zucchini and corn muffins. The food was washed down, as usual, with hot tea. Thank you. 
Is this ginger tea again? Oh, no, it looks oh, different. It? It's, it's not green tea. Yeah. Green, green, green tea, tea this time. Okay. I got some fig tree. You've got and some then, what? Yeah, fig tree and persimmon. Give me your address. I oh. deliver free. No <laughs> You promise you have to keep. Yeah, I promise everybody, but, but. it depends on the weather mm. and the and the birds. Yeah, beautiful. Okay. I'm sure you like it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and do you just eat the fruit on its own, or do you make it into something? Uh, no. It it is fat like that. The best thing is it, anything and any food and veggie fat. That's my opinion, not your. You're Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. You, you you know my my grandchildren the way they eat the way they are all Australian. Okay. We're Australian. Not much different. Yeah. How do they eat? Uh, they don't eat some some stuff like, like this. Pineapple. They don't like and it. Most of the tropical food they don't like much. Like mango. So <coughs> like mangoes. Mango. But Chris doesn't like. They uh, were born in the same family, but all different types <laughs> when they eat. Emily, my granddaughter in Brisbane, she's out. Oh. Whatever food you put on the table, she can eat. But as soon as you put the bread, she stopped the rest, she just ate the plain bread. Mm. Her favorite one. How old is she? Eight. Okay. But she likes bread since she knows how to eat solid mm. food and go into a Chinese restaurant. She just order a bowl of rice. Bread and rice. <laughs> so far, I'd learned a fair amount about Tua and Q, but not T and Sho. The latter couple were the quieter of the pair, at least in English and with me. However, when I asked the two couples how they met each other, that became a good starting point for their story. Mm-hmm. Q took up my question to begin with. When we arrived in Australia more than 30 years ago. We form a Vietnamese community. She explained that from time to time, the two couples would meet to chat and to help each other. T and Cho did a lot of work back then resettling newly arrived Vietnamese refugees. They formed sponsorship groups, found accommodation, and helped the arrivals to buy clothes, furniture, and access government benefits. When we heard a new group of Vietnamese arrived, we, we came to visit them, and then we asked them to join. We formed a group with like a community, and then that community grows slowly, bigger and bigger. Uh, that's it, huh? And then we help each other. Because at that time, we were um, public servants, both of us. So, so we were able to to form um, the sponsoring group under the ICRA. Uh, Indo-China Refugee Association. Is it? ICRA. ICRA. Yeah, I Resettlement Association. Yeah. from there. This might seem like an obvious question, but why did you form the community? Why were you so invested in helping other refugees? <laughs> That's easy. Because we were in that situation, 
we know how hard to be settled in a foreign country without the helping. So when we settle down, we want to help those people. And those people, if they want to talk, they help the next. Because we, when our condition, when we sponsor them, they said um, uh, only one rejected by the, um, government. The, the, the government, the other group, the Australian group, usually they want the, a complete family, husband, wife, children. But with us, we said no. We accept only people who, uh, who were rejected by the other group. So, and the company minors, um, uh, parents, uh, father or mother with shy children, and then we accept any, anybody who can speak your name. Then when I arrived, we said, oh, we consider ourselves lucky. We arrived here first, so, so we want to have. So that covered physical needs. In dealing with any refugees' emotional struggles, they said that they had a social worker and knew a psychologist and would refer the person to whomever was most appropriate. When I asked the group if they and the other refugees discussed amongst each other what they'd been through, they said, No. <laughs> no. You, we because try to forget. We try. First, we try to forget. Second, we always consider we were the lucky one. Yeah. So no room for complaining. And lots of people still complain. We heard mm -hmm. about it. And when we check, if this complaint is appropriate, we prepare them. And some people just complain for complaining or for <laughs> want to get more benefit. Ignore them. <laughs> That's all. And we, uh, we re uh, remind them that the refugee, you come and you cope with it new life, it hard enough, yeah. yeah. You okay. don't know more to complain. People support you on all the way, mm -hmm. yeah. Why you complain? No, no reason to complain. Happy with what you got. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a life or death to us. When we escape, right, we pass that one. We thank God. If Q and Tua were lucky, Cho and T were luckier still. They left Vietnam right as the Vietnam War was ending, so... They didn't, they... <laughs> to escape from mm -hmm. Vietnam, <laughs> like both people. In, people. Uh, you know, in April 75, as soon as we lost the country, they left. Yeah, we left, we went to the boat on, on the night, 29th April. And the next day, next okay. morning, this of April. The 30th of April was the last day of the Vietnam War. And then yeah. settled in America. Yeah, for a year there. <laughs> and then she has a sister in Australia mm. who uh, were overseas students. Mm. And that sister sponsored them to Australia. I remarked on their good timing and asked how they knew to get out when they did. Both Joe and Q responded. In Vietnam, they... Everybody knows that we were about to lose to yeah. the north. Yeah. But uh, some people way. hasn't got the means mm -hmm. to escape. Yeah, but they, they have. They have the connection. 
Yeah, my, my, my mother was so scared. She wanted to step. She said, oh, no, no, we could not stay with the, the communists and going to kill us all. Because all the men in our family, um, in, in the army. And, and then the, the, the boy, my, my cousin, he was the captain in the Navy. He came back and said, just wait tonight. Tonight I have the boat along the river. You just wait there. They went to the river at 7 o'clock to where her cousin, a naval officer, had said to wait. His navy boat was there, but the sides were too tall and they couldn't climb up them. At that point, some other people came along. They said, You want to step? I have a boat. A cargo boat. Not if you pay us some money, some wagon. I said, okay, yes. Just wait for us tomorrow morning. We just arrived, and now we have um, our equipage have to go home to visit family first, and then we come back early in the morning, and then we go in the boat, and then we go. In the morning, Cho and her family arrived, 27 in all. The boat was there, but not the men from earlier. We went, we went, we went, until nobody came. They kept waiting. The hours rolled on. It was then 5pm. On the radio that they had with them, they heard the news about the end of the Vietnam War. But still, no one came. That night we sleep in the boat. Then the next day, before the sun was up, people started shouting, Communists are here, communists are here. They want to escape. Her cousin cut the chain to the anchor and they set off. And then we left slowly on along the river. We end up in, in America. Their journey to America is worth mentioning. After leaving Vietnam, they arrived in Singapore where they were taken in by the Americans. They stayed only briefly though, to receive health checks and some food, including sardines and rice, before being sent on their way again in a smaller boat. Cho said that an aircraft, like a helicopter, guided them from above to the Philippines, where they again stayed briefly before being taken to Guam. From Guam, they were taken to a military camp in San Diego, then to Arkansas, and finally, back to California. By the time they returned to California, it had been a year since they'd left Vietnam, and they were tired of moving around. But finally, they got the opportunity to settle. Half the group decided to stay in California. The other half came to Australia, including Cho, whose sister was studying here. So that's Cho and T's journey to Australia in a nutshell. Unlike some refugees who had come after them, Cho and T didn't have too hard of a time adjusting to this foreign country. Though they didn't benefit from a support network and community, they had just spent a year in America, so had gotten used to life in the West. They settled in Canberra, where T found work straight away at the Australian National University. Joe would join him there a year later, but in the meantime, she had to stay home and care for their children, as her youngest was too young for daycare. She described that first year as hard because they were living on just T's salary. 
they had three young kids, plus they were renting on the open market, as government accommodation hadn't yet been made available to them. Joe described one way that they managed to make it work. We ate a lot of vegetables. Went out in the backyard, we put some seeds in, tried to find the kind of a kind of uh, like the spinach. Yeah, a white one in the ham. I pick some there and then the shoot of the pumpkin shoot. <laughs> I cook the soup, soup with this uh, some meat for dinner every day. And then my daughter, she about seven years old, and then, mommy, why you give us um, wheat, the wheat soup every day? <laughs> wheat, <laughs> you should go to wheat. Wheat. Go, and with a miss spinach. What she said, wheat. While Cho and T and their family came to Australia in 1976, Tua and Q came later. Which year exactly, they can't remember now, but there is one number Q holds distinctly in her mind. Like coming in Australia, I have only nine dollars in my pocket. It wasn't enough, she said, to buy all the stamps she needed to mail the letters she'd collected from people in their refugee camp. I was too generous. I said, no, don't give me any money. <laughs> I can afford the stamp here, but I realized nine dollars. During that time, a stamp to America only... I bring in a lot of letters for people in the camp. <laughs> and then I quickly um, send telegram to my sister, send me back money, please, the government doesn't give me the benefit yet. They were staying in what was then called the Villawood Migrant Hostel. The government allowed us to come to Sydney. And we live in Willowwood, mm. but during that time, you know, they allow a family live there for nine months. She tried to find alternative accommodation near Villawood, but found the air too polluted, which triggered her migraines. So she approached St. Vincent de Paul and asked if anyone was willing to sponsor their move to another city. We didn't know that Sydney had two parts. One is really good. And the wheel of wood, the Karamata, the Bansau, quite bad during that time. And then somehow we learned that a Catholic group agreed to sponsor six families come to Canberra. So we resisted with them. And they placed us in Campbell. We were sponsored by a really, really nice group. One is an ANU professor. One is a high... Uh, uh, the defense. Yeah, the defense. And above all is a father, the Catholic father, who look after. Father Ryan, huh? No, Doctor. Oh yeah, Father Tom Rai. Father Rai. Yeah. Tom Rai. Tom Rai. Father Tom Rai. The sponsor group found the family accommodation, and in addition, they send our children to a Catholic school Central and they pay for the fee yeah. and when we discovered that we said okay let me pay <laughs> 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 so, are you sure you want to pay? Gu and Tua said yes 
After arriving in Australia with only $9, they'd come to Canberra with $800, thanks to the income Twa had earned as a car detailer in Sydney. Okay, I have $800, I can buy for the free. It costs one home for two children, only $250 only. <laughs> That's a lot of money, huh? And coming to Canberra about six weeks later, he became a storeman. He bring home the salary only $160. Yeah. And I was a cleaner. <laughs> yeah, I was a cleaner. It's a new day. Yeah, we come here without any English. A sunny Saturday with only a hint of chill in the air. And they provide us the on-arrival course full time for maybe three months. Q and I are walking around Kayleen Primary. Twa and T are about 50 feet behind us. Cho is back by the breakfast spot doing her exercises. She's not able to do the laps with us because of her bad hips. And then we leave the school and five work. Mm. And we pick up English along the way. As we walk, we talk about her and Twa learning English upon arriving in Australia. It's enough for daily use. Mm-hmm. Not things to describe a lot. Yeah. Or the work to express our feeling. Mm-hmm. We don't have enough. Did you feel that not speaking good a English. local does? Yeah, did you feel that not speaking good as English. well as a local yeah. did that uh, no. that put distance between yeah, the two? Yeah, 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 I feel that too. But um, I want to learn. So the way I learn is just by reading. Mm-hmm. And listen to the tape. But that's the beginning mm. uh, of the outline here. And over the years, you get you tend to be busy. Mm. You forgot it. Mm. And then you get used to it. I say, okay, don't worry. Mm-hmm. So after a while you stop actively learning yeah. English. Okay. And even worse with the retirement. You stay home. You lost a lot of friends. Even you go out, you don't speak much. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So was that a negative part of retiring, not seeing people? Could be, because we don't have many friends and it's hard to find friends like when you were young. Mm -hmm. Some people become really lonely when they are getting older and older. And at one stage, I went to have people in the retirement village and I don't know why. Many, many people become really angry oh. when we didn't do the right thing or as they wish. What do you mean? Like uh, a lady asked me to put up a game for her to play. Mm-hmm. And I just started. I didn't know how. I keep asking her several questions. I said, leave it, leave it. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. And she got angry. I just tell them, I'm a volunteer. 
So I don't know much about how to set it up or how the filing in there. So it takes time for me to find it. So when did you do that? When I arrived. In fifties. Ah. Could be fifteen, sixteen years ago. Okay. And then how long did you volunteer? Oh, I last for six months. Oh, okay. And then I got stressed. Yeah. Some, some are really nice. Mm-hmm. But some horrible. Yeah. And I got stressed to see some people get ill or couldn't uh, be in, independent. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, this job, this kind of volunteer is not fit for me because you need to be trained first to cope with it. Mm-hmm. And you hadn't received any training? No, okay. I just commented. Yeah. <laughs> what brought Q to the retirement home in the first place was her mother-in-law taking up residence there. And is she okay with living there now? No, no, I'm sorry, she's uh, passed, she passed away. Okay. Yeah, because ah. I used the precipitants. Mm. Well, she seemed to have lived a long life. Yeah, like in 95. Wow. And still good memory. Mm-hmm. Have you thought about how long you want to live for? Uh, um, it depends on how I pray to God. Mm-hmm. If I'm healthy, let me live. But if not, take me away mm. <laughs> as soon as possible. Mm. I pray for that. Do you feel that there's still a lot to do? What do you mean a lot of to do in this life? Yeah, do you feel like you've still got a lot to do that... um... I felt pretty cheeky as it was asking the question at all. I simply couldn't take the next step and bring myself to say the words, still a lot to do before you die. Uh, Which makes you want to kind of live longer and be healthy for that. The children still need us and we still healthy to enjoy life and at the moment if we don't have any sickness that prevent us to enjoy life mm. Mm. i mean cho and um t are older than you and why are you are you worried about them uh, when i heard her illness you mean I worry well, about. I mean, just because they're older and, you know, um, your group's been shrinking for the past kind of uh-huh. several years. Yeah. Yeah. Are you worried that it'll shrink further? Um, not really worried, but sometimes you feel sad that you lost friends and then you know your time approaching that time. Mm. <laughs> but we learn, we try to learn. Don't be afraid of that. Mm. Are we or finishing? Dying. Are we finishing up? We've done two. (laughs) I really hated having to interrupt Q, but we'd just completed two laps of Kayleen Primary and we're a few metres into a third, and the group always only does two. So I have enough energy to do the third lap (laughs) because it used to be puffing, huh? Remember, I walk one round, I puff a lot, and then the second round, I do it very slow. But now I can do two rounds without puffing. Four rounds. Two rounds. Yeah, two rounds. She was about to do a third lap. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Maybe my heart is better.
Yeah, that's good. So I good. need to know more Czech side. Okay. That's good. For breakfast today, I contributed spinach and ricotta phyllo triangles. Tua and Q served up freshly sliced pineapple, which we ate dipped in a spice mix a daughter bought in Byron Bay. And Cho and T brought some cassava cake and jasmine tea. It's a southern Vietnamese tea. What, how is it different from a North Vietnamese tea? Um, North is a bit darker, but not really much flavour In the course of our breakfasts, I've been occasionally humbled by small moments of intimacy I've experienced, specifically with Tuan and Q. These take the form of casual gestures that they might not think much of, but they take me by surprise. Like at this breakfast, when Tua gestured to his open mouth. What are you doing? No, he just got a new so new implant. The new implant. Yeah. Oh, okay. A new, a new tooth. Yeah. Is is it the whole tooth? They dig up, they, uh, they uh, take the old one out and then they screw it in and then put a new one on. Wow. Oh, painful. He went on to talk about how much money their family has spent on dentists. The dentists get a lot of money since we arrived in Australia until now. Maybe I can buy a big Mercedes. <laughs> After a while, I steered the conversation to where we'd left off last time, what life was like for them in their early years in Australia. I asked if they'd faced any discrimination because they arrived here on the hills of the dismantlement of the White Australia policy. Although they're unclear about their precise year of arrival after the end of the Vietnam War, it's worth putting in context that as of the 1971 census, only 717 people were recorded as being from Cambodia, Laos or Vietnam. As the refugees poured in, the country's demographics dramatically changed, but of course societal attitudes always take longer to adjust. Anyway, Q said that yes, they and their children did experience discrimination early on, but they were determined not to be affected by it. We saw along the uh, train tunnel, they said Asian out or uh, Gong out or something like that. You have it, but firstly, I don't understand. Second, when I understand it, I don't care. Just ignore it. Just ignore no. it. No. And one lesson that I really like. She went on to talk about how a classmate of her daughter's, when she was around six years old, told her daughter how their eyes differ from Westerners. And she has an eye like me. Monolidded eyes. They said, Zhang, I teach you. My um, father is Chinese. And then put her out. And Zhang, copy her. And my uh, mother Chinese, my father Japanese. See, look how I came to be. And then Chan learned it, and then she she thought it's uh, funny. She told her daughter not to do those things at home, and explained to her that discrimination doesn't matter. You stand above the embarrassment or the hurting uh, feeling. That's good. So I teach my children just ignore it. And they ignore it. And you know, you remember it's really hard to call Trang 
actually drunk, and the teacher tend to put the English name to Vietnamese student. She said, "No, my name is Trang. I like to keep Trang." He clapped, so, and gave a smile as if to say, "Well, what can I do?" But doing so in that proud motherly way. One of their daughters is now a lawyer in Canberra, and the other is a doctor. Q said that she and Tua never forced them to be studious, but they ended up working hard because they grew up seeing their parents work hard. Since Q and Tua retired, Tua has tried to help his Canberra-based daughter out wherever he can around the house, but there are only so many things that need fixing. What's he saying? No, he said something Some, else. Sometimes, yeah. you know, I just talk to him that uh, the old people like that we are useless. We yeah, don't I don't think so. I got my feeling sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> people go to work, they pro um, their productivity fine. keep on and on and on. We just a burden for them. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, I thought you were saying before that your daughter always has yeah, you around to but do not things. enough. Uh-huh. Sometimes we feel not okay. enough. Hmm. We need to contribute more. Yeah. Okay. okay, you go to yeah. work volunteer. Yeah. Uh, for example, this lady, she uh, continue to do her job. <laughs> the future of the ultra, yeah. She look after grandchildren every day, cook for grandchildren. That's a lot of work to do. Don't you think you've done enough? You've contributed enough? Across your lifetime, and and now is the time to just enjoy and to relax. Maybe that's the way uh, way of life of most Asian people. When the, you ask somebody Australian, yeah, they, they may say, "Oh, I need to enjoy what I got." <laughs> they feel they fulfill their duty, but sometimes we feel we need more to do more. So you don't think that um you know you've spent all this time looking after your children and grandchildren that it's time for them to look after you? No, no, no we, we don't never. Expect it. it never occurred to us. No, we never. don't expect them to <laughs> to look at that. Because in Vietnam they yeah. expect yes that thing. No, not here. But coming here, we adapt to this life, mm. and then like um, lots of our friends has already by the um, lot in the cemetery. And then some of them already build the stone. The tombstone. But without the name, that's all. But still empty. Still empty. (laughs) (laughs) They don't want to be any burden to their children. And for me and I, we just have the cremation. It's easier. (laughs) And then it's up to my daughter whether she want to keep the ashes or she just want to <laughs> put it into the sea and put it under the tree gum tree <laughs> between us we agree that anybody uh, stay alive keep the ashes of the one who went first and then after that one okay no worries I don't mind whether you put anywhere. <laughs> Any tree you like, 
like uh, for me now a person <laughs> <laughs> and I dig a hole, put it there and that go again and helping people. <laughs> I, I'm sure it would grow much better yeah. with your contribution. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you believe in an afterlife? Reincarnation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Buddhist. Mm. But I don't stick to the doctrines they taught because I can see everything it changed over the years. And uh, before we thought like um, just like a stone, never changed, but now we still learn a lot. Keep changing what we it call nothing, like uh, no, nothing stay forever. It yeah. runs around a circle like so that. So yeah. reincarnation fit into that. Once you were born, that you will be die. And then once you die, you have another life to rebirth. So it's okay. And what do you believe, Joel? Hmm? What do you believe? <laughs> do you, do you because believe? I am Muslim. Uh -huh. I don't believe to under the life. It's the only thing I can have now, I have. Mm -hmm. After that, it's all right. <laughs> do you believe in an afterlife? No. Oh, okay. Only one life. Okay. Why you don't expect anything. Mm. <laughs> so, so, do you think that we go anywhere after we die? No, because they have, um, after the, uh, the judgment day, we, uh, there will be a judgment day. Yeah, it will be a judgment day, that when you go to the paradise, you hope to live. <laughs> yeah. That means still lie after that. Because yeah, the you must have a life to go to the paradise or go to the yeah. hell. It, it's not life, it, 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 forever. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, forever. So, Does it give you comfort, the idea that there might be a paradise to go to? We, we don't expect to have the paradise, but we expect if you can not do anything good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you do anything good, you will have the, 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 the process of the good thing. But is that there done? No. <laughs> they, don't, they don't expect anything. Okay. Yeah. This couple have a lot for the, uh, <laughs> the society, especially Vietnamese community. Anything we can have, anything we can do. Mm -hmm. In this discussion of the different faiths and beliefs in what might happen to them after they die, it occurred to me. But then if you're going to paradise and the two of you are going to be reincarnated, that means that you won't see each other after this life. <laughs> not, not in our control. <laughs> after talking and eating some more, Twa announced. Okay, we today. The remaining food is packed away, the leftover tea tossed onto the ground. T gathers his blue tablecloth, then the table. Twa folds up our chairs and returns them to the boot of his car. With a wave and goodbyes, they part. Until the next breakfast.
You've been listening to Love Canberra. This show was written, produced, and edited by me, Ivana Ho. My deepest gratitude goes to Ku, Tua, T, and Cho, with whom I've had the pleasure of sharing many breakfasts and walks, with many more, no doubt, to come. The theme music for this and all episodes comes from Proliter. You can find details for all the interstitial music in this episode's show notes. If you'd like to get in touch, I'm at lovecamberapodcast at gmail.com and at lovecbrpodcast on Twitter. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.